Oh, Father, we give you thanks this morning for your word, which is sufficient to address every issue of the heart, anything and everything pertaining to life and godliness. You have left nothing out that is necessary for us to live a life that's pleasing to you, a life that gives us great joy to live even when circumstances are hard. And so we praise you, Father. We will never stop praising you for being so good to us by giving us this book and not leaving us to try to figure out life blindly. And this morning, Father, as we pick up talking about marriage once again, I pray, oh, Father, that you would use your word to pierce our hearts, not to condemn us, but to bring us to the cross where all of our sin can be forgiven and where all of our guilt and shame can be washed away and where genuine repentance and transformation and sanctification can begin. Lead us to the cross now, Father. For we pray it in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. My intention this morning was to pick up in 1 Corinthians 7 and start uh, working through Paul's uh, dealings with the issue of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Um, but Charlie reminded me in the middle of the week that uh, this is Lord's Supper Sunday, and I thought there is no way I'm going to be able to handle the di- divorce debate uh, in time for us to have the Lord's Supper as well, unless we wanted to just have lunch together and then come back. And so I decided to change it up and, um, and just kind of pick up where we left off last week, because I think there's more that can be said, and had such a tremendous response from what was said last week, and I hope you were helped by that. Um, but I want to pick it up again where we left off, because there's, there's more to be said here. If it's true that God created marriage to show the world what God is like, as I have suggested to you many times that it is. And if it's also true that the main obstacle to our fulfilling that purpose in marriage is sin, namely sin against one another within the marriage context, then what can we do about that sin? If sin is the problem, how do we handle the problem? Now, it sounds like, you know, did you really need to tell us that? I mean, we know that sin is the issue, okay? Well, it's good to know that sin is the issue, but I dare say most Christians have no idea what to do about it or how to handle it from a biblical perspective. We are very sensitive to the reality that we have been sinned against. But I'm here to tell you what you already know, and that is if you are in a marriage that's struggling, whether you're struggling just a little bit right now, a little bit of tension, that, that you probably don't think it's going to last very long and probably won't, or you're in serious problems, it doesn't matter. In either scenario, there are two sinners who are, who are relating. And unless one of you is perfect, then both of you have contributed sin to the problem. And so how do you deal with that sin? It's so easy to look at your partner, your mate, and see her sin. Oh, boy, crystal clear. Crystal clear. Describe to me your wife's sin. Oh, how much time do we have? You know, there's this, there's that. There's, I've got 25 things. You may have 50, 100 things. And then when I turn and say, now what have you contributed to the marriage? And, and here's, the, here's the common response. Oh, I haven't been perfect. 
Yeah, but what have you contributed? You know, I just can't think of anything. Isn't it amazing how clearly we see other people's sin, but we have such a hard time to see our own? It takes the Holy Spirit. It takes the Word of God to pierce through our hearts and to divide, as Hebrews 4 says, even between the joints and the marrow. But that's what the Word of God's for, and that's what the Holy Spirit is for. And so the question is, if sin is the problem in marriage, then what's the answer? And this is an important question, because last week I gave you what I believe to be the two foundational resolutions every Christian couple must make and must live by in order to have the kind of marriage that is pleasing to the Lord and brings joy to themselves and to their children. And, uh, and before I rehash that just a little bit, let me just also say that this isn't, this isn't only for married couples. This is any relationship where love is required, which means love your wife, love your neighbor, love your enemy. That pretty much, you know, sums up the whole world, right? Your wife, your neighbor, your enemy. Neighbor would be anybody you run into anywhere in the world. You're called to love them. So what is love? So these two resolutions, the first resolution is this, that I am resolved to love my wife biblically. I am resolved to live my wife, love my wife biblically. Now let's refresh on the definition of love that I gave you last week. Love is this. Love is giving whatever I have that she needs because God wants me to. Love is giving whatever it is that I have that she needs because God wants me to. You say, that doesn't sound like it comes from the Bible. No, what it is is a compilation of the truth from all of the passages about love brought into one statement. If you can do that better, and there probably is a better way, then feel free. But let me refresh you on three scriptures that really demonstrate that to give is not necessarily to feel, although I hope that the person you love is someone you feel love for, but fundamentally is more than feeling, it is to give. To love is to give. To love is to give. To love is to what? To give. That's right. And the three scriptures I gave you, the first one most familiar, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And then we have the explicit passage about marriage in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ. Love the church. And that's, by the way, show the world what Christ is like. That's what that's about. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And then Mark chapter 10 Verse 45, which says, for even, this is Jesus speaking, for even the Son of Man, now hold it right there, Son of Man being from Daniel chapter 7, where in Daniel's vision we see the Son of Man being presented to uh, the Ancient of Days. It's God the Father being presented to God the Son, because God the Father, uh, God the Son being presented to God the Father, because God the Father is going to give to the Son of Man, God the Son, all of the nations so that they will serve Him. 
And so Jesus kept referring to himself as the Son of Man because he was thinking, Daniel chapter 7, this is who I am. So all of the nations have been given to the Son of Man that they will serve him. But in Mark chapter 10, verse 30, uh, verse, what did I say? 45, um, Jesus says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give. And to give what? His life. Why was he giving his life a ransom for many? Because that's what we needed. Did he feel good about that? Think Garden of Gethsemane, sweating blood, Father, if there's any other way. But also think Hebrews 12, for the joy that was set before him, not the joy that he's experiencing now in the garden, but for the joy set before him. I know if I obey the Father, there's joy at the end. It starts out hard, but it ends in joy. And that needs to be our perspective. Listen, to love is to give. You say, what about 1 Corinthians 13? Love is patient. You know what you need to give to your wife when she's bugging you? The first thing is not a rebuke. It's not even a biblical reproof. Don't jump there. Get there when you have to. That's also a problem when we don't do that. But the place you should start is be patient. Give patience. Not because you feel like it, but because God wants you to give to her whatever it is that you have by the Holy Spirit, right? It's one of the fruit of the Spirit. Give to her simply because you want to please the Lord. You say, well, at that moment, I don't feel like being patient. It doesn't matter. Jesus didn't feel like dying for you or me, but he did it despite his feelings. But you don't understand what he deserves. You don't understand what she has done to me. Do we understand what we did against Jesus? Do we understand the price that he paid for people while we were his enemies? That, beloved, is love. To love is to give. To love is to give. And so, the first resolution of any couple whose marriage is functioning well to glorify God, and they're knowing the joy of it on a regular, perhaps daily basis, is they're resolved to love one another biblically. Oh, if you get that down, it'll take your marriage halfway. You say, what about the other half? Well, that's the other resolution. The other resolution is this. It's somewhere here in my notes. The other resolution is that we resolve to address sin biblically. And we were reminded last week that God calls us to keep short accounts of sin. Paul told the believers in Ephesus, be angry, but don't sin. And don't let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, keep or seek reconciliation quickly. Name your sin, confess it as sin, ask forgiveness for your sin. You say, what if, what if she's 90% the problem and I'm only 10% of the problem? Then you confess your 10 What if she's 95% of the problem and you're only 5% of the problem? Then confess your five. You can't do anything for her in terms of making her change. 
You can only change yourself. And even then, only by the power of the Holy Spirit, only by the grace of God, only by sanctifying grace. Even yourself, it's hard enough to to repent yourself. But we must because that's what God wants us to do. So seek reconciliation quickly. Name your sin, confess it as sin, ask for forgiveness. Otherwise, I guarantee what will happen. If you don't, if you've sinned against your spouse and it's not been dealt with, it's like giving her a wound. It's like taking a knife and giving her a wound. And, and you think, well, it wasn't that bad. I mean, I didn't cut off her arm. I mean, give me a break. It wasn't that bad. I mean, I just, you know, I did what I did. Get over it. Well, here's what's going to happen. That wound will not heal properly until it is appropriately medicated It's going to get infected. And you may end up losing that arm because you didn't apply the remedy. Which, when the issue is sin, the remedy is biblical forgiveness. Just as we have misunderstanding about what biblical love is, so we misunderstand what biblical forgiveness is and what it entails. But we need to master this, beloved. We need to master this. And because we're sharing the Lord's table this morning, I don't have a lot of time to go in to transactional forgiveness. But I did uh, do a, a sermon series a number of years ago on the issue of forgiveness. And people that we counsel generally listen to these sooner or later. And it's called God's Remedy for Sin, Forgiveness. Um, no commercial for this, but these are available. And uh, you can get one. Uh, there is probably nothing that I have taught that's been more transformative in the lives of God's people here at Calvary Bible Church. No truths from Scripture that have been more helpful than those. Because we just are not good at applying the remedy of biblical forgiveness. And biblical forgiveness is not saying, I'm sorry. Biblical forgiveness is not saying, I apologize. Biblical forgiveness, as we said last week, is looking at the other person and saying, what I did was a sin against God and a sin against you, and I'm so sorry. I need to ask your forgiveness. Will you forgive me? Nothing heals spiritual wounds more than that kind of integrity. And so, beloved, we need to master this. But what I want to talk about for the remainder of my time this morning is this. What's the cause of all of that? I mean, why do we need transactional forgiveness? Why do we need to even go there? Well, as I said, it's sin. But to say it's sin is one thing. But to be specific about what that sin entails is is perhaps quite another. And so I'd like for you to turn with me to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. And if you were at the conference this weekend, um, I I felt like halfway through that... that, uh, that Dr. Baker was preaching this sermon, but I had already written the sermon twice this week, and I wasn't going to rewrite it. So if this is review for you, then uh, the Lord knows you need to hear it again. That's all I have to say. (laughs) And I need to hear this every day of my life. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Follow along with me now. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Isn't that the issue? How many trees have lost their lives for psychologists who have sought to answer this question? And the answer's been staring at us for thousands of years in plain print. In, in our generation, in 
in printed language. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Oh, Lord, it would be so helpful if you helped us understand why we fight. Why do we fight? Lord, why do we treat each other like this? If I only knew why I treat my wife like this, maybe, maybe I could apply the remedy better. And so, through the Holy Spirit, James says, verse 2, Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust, that's the problem. And you do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your, there's that word again, pleasures, hedonos, um, from which we get hedonism, hedonistic, lover of pleasure. That's our problem. It's not that we're incompatible. It's not that the e-harmony scores were off the charts in opposite directions. That's not the problem. Any two people who are walking in the Spirit ought to be able to get along. Any two people who are walking in the Spirit will be living their lives ruled by the Word of God rather than by their feelings. And they're going to be able to get along. Not all the time, but then there's forgiveness and healing for those who will apply that as well. But here James is exposing our hearts. He's saying, you want to know why you fight? It's because of this word, you lust. Now, in case you don't know this, and I assume many of you do not, I I know that many of you do, in case you don't know this, the word for lust here is an important word in the Greek. Um, If you're interested, it's pronounced epithumia. Um, And so if you want to impress your friends, just say that and... Um, but epithumia, the reason you need to know that the Greek word is that is because in the English, the other places that Greek word is used is not translated lust. For example, one of those places is 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, where we find Paul telling Timothy, if anyone desires or anyone aspires to the office of elder, overseer, pastor, if anyone aspires to that office, it is a good thing that he, what? Desires. You know what the word is there? Epithumia. It is a good thing that he desires. Hmm. Why'd they translate it desire and not lust? Or maybe the other way around, why did they translate lust in James when it's desire here? It's the same word. And what about this? And, and this one's even more baffling. Luke 22, verse 15. And Jesus, coming into the upper room looks at his men and he says this, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. And so here it's two words, earnestly desired in English, but in the Greek it's one, epithumia. So why is it translated earnestly desire and desire in those two passages? And yet in James chapter four, it's translated lust. Hmm, that's a good question. Why does the translators... What did the translators, what was it that the translators were thinking about when they got to James chapter 4? And I'll tell you what he, they were thinking about. In the two other cases, they were 
non-sinful desires, strong desires that were holy, just, and good. In this case, however, the desire is sinful. There's something about these, these desires that he's talking about that are sinful. Now, there are two ways that a desire can be classified as sinful. And these are, at least the first one should be pretty intuitive for us. The first way that a desire can be sinful is if the object of our desire is inherently sinful. Uh, If you're flitting around on the internet and you come to a site that you have frequently gone to before that contains pictures that you shouldn't be looking at, and you click, um, I'm sorry, but you knew that was sin before you clicked. It is inherently sinful. If you cheat on your taxes, you know better than that. It is inherently sinful. I mean, just fill in the blank. If you steal something from Walmart the next time you go because you don't have the money to pay for it, uh, that's inherently sinful. If you beat your wife, it's inherently sinful. If you cuss, if you lie, it is inherently sinful. And so that's obvious, right? There are some desires. The object of those desires is just wrong. It's just sinful. On the other hand, there are good desires that we can have that can become sinful. You say, well, what kind of good desires? Well, how about this? Respect. Wives, how many of you wives want your husbands, how many of you, excuse me, how many of you husbands want your wives to respect you? Go ahead, you can raise your hand. (laughs) There's one in the back. Thank you, brother. You can come forward. (laughs) Look, we all do. We all want respect. We all want to be respected. There isn't a man here among us who doesn't want that respect. And Scripture tells wives they should respect their husbands. So we have biblical precedent. So that's a good desire. It's a holy desire. How many of you wives want to be loved by your husband? Oh, the wife of the other person. <laughs> that's great. And all of you wives, if you weren't so humble, would have raised your hand and said, I want to be loved. I want my husband to cherish me. I want him to nurture and cherish me. That comes right out of Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives. It's commanded, so it's a good thing. It's a holy thing. And it's not only cherished, but it's nourished. It's, come on, support me. Take care of me financially. That's a good thing. How about success? You want success? Ah, Joshua 1, 8, 9, this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate therein day and night so that you may obey everything that is written in it, then you will have good success. That's a good desire. About food. Oh, let's just move on from that one. (laughs) About comfort. That strikes too close to home, too. About power or sex or acceptance. All of those desires are good. And they're all potentially holy. And James is not making a distinction between the ones that are inherently sinful and the ones that are not inherently sinful. In fact, some of our desires can be holy as an object of our desire, and yet they can still be sinful. How so? Here's the thing. If you desire a good thing too much, then it is sinful for you. Now, how do I know if I'm desiring it too much. 
Well, here we go, the definition of lust, right? When does a desire become a lust? A desire becomes a lust, it becomes a sin, a holy desire, something in the Bible that perhaps is even commanded, a good desire, something that maybe is not commanded but is lawful, a holy desire, and that could be for children that, that could be playing, playing the Wii or playing PS2 or whatever contraption they're playing these days. Or it could be watching TV, or it could be playing your favorite sport, your hobby, or who knows what it could be. It could be anything. Anytime you want that, here's the definition of lust. If you want it so badly, you're willing to sin to get it. Or if you're willing to sin if you don't get it. It doesn't matter how holy the object may be. You love it too much. You're willing for it to rule your life and become an excuse for your sin. And now it is your sin. This happens all the time in marriages. Kind of a tit-for-tat kind of thing. You see that all the time. One person sins against the other. Husband sins against his wife. And no doubt, wife's going to be tempted. Wife sins against her husband. No doubt. I mean, it's just natural, right? But we're not called to live in the natural. We're called to live by supernatural principles and power by the Holy Spirit. But if your husband sins against you, no doubt you're going to be tempted. Wife sins against you, no doubt you're going to be tempted. One of your big brothers or sisters uh, sins against you, you're going to be tempted. That's a given. The question is this, how are you going to respond to that temptation? If you respond to their sin by sin then you've just sinned. And you may say, well, all I want is for her to respect me, and that's a biblical thing. And my response will be, you're right. That's a biblical thing, but you wanted it too much. You allowed that good biblical thing to become your God. And you know how I know that? It's because at that moment, you stopped obeying the true God and started obeying this thing that ruled you in that moment. You sacrificed to it like an idol. You sacrificed your fellowship with your husband or your wife. You paid homage to it. You worshipped that respect or that love or whatever it is. And you let it rule you. So you love it and it rules you. It's a really bad relationship. If I were a psychiatrist, I'd say it's seriously codependent, but I'm not. But that's what happens in our relationships. And we get confused because a lot of times the things that we are sinning over are good things. I just want him, just want her to love me. Just want him to love me. I just want her to respect me. I just want him to fulfill his responsibilities. I, I just want him to smile at me. I just want him to treat the kids a little nicer. I just wish he'd discipline a little more. I wish he'd lead I wish you'd get out of the way. I wish you'd let me sleep. I wish you'd get up and fix the house. You know what? All of those things are wonderful things. But if you love it so much that you're willing to disobey God to get it, then that good thing has just now become sin to you. Your love for it has become sin. Any desire that we have, no matter how biblical it can be, becomes a lust if we want it too much. 
And when that happens, then it becomes sin. More than that, it becomes our master, and we love it, and we're willing to submit and serve it. And beloved, oh, the sacrifices that we make for these worthless masters. The sacrifices that men on the computer make every time they click. The sacrifices women make sometimes when they're watching daytime TV. What they're giving up from their soul that they should be giving to the Lord and to their husbands. We make sacrifices of worship to these things that we love, these things that master us. You ever wonder why the Old Testament was so full of examples of Israel committing idolatry? The Baals and the Ashtaroths and all of that. I mean, it's just sickening to read. And you think, what's the point? I mean, all of these people were idol worshipers. I can't relate to that. And then you get to the New Testament. And then the New Testament starts laying your heart bare and revealing, yes, you do. You're exactly Israel. As John Calvin would say, your heart is a factory of desires. It's an idol factory. But here's the thing. Unless someone shows it to you, then you don't see it. But once you've seen it, now you can see it in the future and repent of it. Or plead with God to help you not give in to the temptation to begin with. And that's what we need to do. And so James says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures, your desires, which wage war? I, I didn't see this before the conference this week with Ernie Baker. To wage war is the word from which we get strategize, strategy. We, we are sinned against or we decide we want something from the other person and we start thinking about our plan. This is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to say. Okay, I'm going to bring flowers home first. That'll soften her up a little bit. And then, you know, step two, step three, step four. Or I'm going to manipulate. I'm going to get what I want. And if at some point she says, no, I'm going to be mad. I'm not going to give to her what she needs that I have because God wants me to. I'm going to demand from her what I want that she has because I want to. And beloved, that's wicked. We need to see it as sin. And if we don't see it as sin, listen to me. Listen to me. If you're not listening to me, listen to me. It'll never get better. It'll never get better until you know that it's sin and you take it to the cross and to the person you're sinning against. Until you realize that these things are sins, we can't help you. All we can do is point you to the truth. The only thing I can do for myself is to remind myself of the truth. The only thing I can do for my wife and for my children as we're disciplining them is to remind them of the truth. This last week, we've been hammering our kids every time we sit down for dinner. Okay, what's the definition of love? You know why? Because this applies to our children. And so what happens if you're all sitting around watching TV and mama walks in the room? Or maybe, now let's make this even harder. Uh, what happens if you're all sitting down watching TV and all the chairs are full and your big sister walks into the room? Or let's make it harder. Your little sister walks in the room and she doesn't have any place to sit. And one of my boys, when I asked that, turned around and walked away. And I said, where is he going? And uh, one of the other kids said, oh, Dad, he knows where you're going with this. <laughs> you want me to give up my chair? Right. Exactly. 
whatever it is that you have that she needs. Not because you like the idea, but because you are ruled by, not your feelings, but you are ruled by the truth of God's word. You know what? When everybody's doing that for everybody else, it's an amazing thing to see. I was talking to Ernie Baker yesterday after the service, and he was going down to uh, Doug Helms Church, Rock Creek Baptist Church, to preach today. He's probably preaching there right now. And uh, he said, I don't know, Doug. What can you tell me about Doug and Seela? And I said, oh, you're going to be so blessed. You know, when they were here, he was one of our elders for a time. And when they were here, they were just, they were just model parents. They did such a wonderful job with their kids. And he said, you know what? When I pulled up to the church here for, for, the, uh, for the conference, he said, I came up behind them, and they didn't know it was me. And uh, they parked their car, and the doors opened, and the son got out of the back and stepped forward and opened the door for his mom. And I said, see? And he said, I know. I'm in the South. <laughs> He's from California. He's never seen that before, I guess. But, um, but what was he doing? Peter Helms was, you know what he was doing? He's saying, I have something that my mom, we can debate whether she needs it or not, but I have it to give, and to love is to give. And so I'm going to open her door. I'm going to make sure she gets the seat. I'm going to make sure she gets the last piece of pie. I'm going to make sure that her needs are met and her desires as best I can fulfill them within the bounds of Scripture are filled. If we're living like that with one another, guess what? If our church were living like that consistently, we'd have bigger space problems than we do right now because everybody would want to be a part of this church. And I say that knowing how good you already are with this. But, oh, we all have much to grow, a long way to grow. So the next time you get angry at your spouse, ask yourself this question. When I'm angry, discipline yourself to ask yourself, myself, this question. Right now, before I say anything, and a lot of times, the first thing I pray is, God, help me not sin with my mouth. Help me not sin with my mouth. The things that come out of this, help me not sin with my mouth. Help me to think clearly on this. And the first thing I need to know is not what is she doing that's sinful against me? What have you commanded her to do that she's not given me? Forget about that. What is it right now that I want that you're not giving me, God? What is it that I want that you think is not good for me right now? Because your wisdom is infinite. And if I'm not getting it, it's because you're withholding it. God, help me to give thanks for that and to respond to her with the fruit of the Spirit in a godly manner and not sin, even if she sins against me. Mm. I'm telling you, Christianity is a radical thing. Is it possible that your anger was holy anger? The last time you got mad at your wife or your husband? Say, well, he clearly sinned. Okay? And you got angry. All right? Be angry and don't sin. So is it possible to be angry and not sin? Sure. It's possible. It's rare. But it's possible. So how do you know if your anger is holy anger or sinful anger? Well, we don't have time to unpack this thoroughly, but let me give you three qualifications for holy anger. Number one. Holy anger reacts against actual sin, as defined by the Bible. It's not, she looked at me funny, or he didn't get my door, or 
I don't know, just fill in the blank. Didn't come home on time, burn the bagels, I don't know. Something that you didn't like. Was it really sin? Was it really sin? Or was it just something that you wanted? Maybe something good that you wanted that at that moment she didn't give. Secondly, is it focused on God and his concerns? If it's holy anger, it'll be focused on God and his concerns, not me and my concerns, wants, and desires. Needs theory, just get it out of your, get it out of your library. Get it out of your heart. The whole thing about his needs and her needs, forget about it. Unless what you're thinking is, I exist to meet her needs. But you don't have any needs. Here's what you need. You have a few needs. Um, you need Jesus. You desperately need forgiveness of sins. You need eternal life. You need a roof over your head and food and water. Anything else that you get that's not hell is grace. It's grace. And because of the cross, we have the freedom to do what Jesus did, and that is to meet the needs that are around us even when my so-called needs are not getting met. That's what it means to show the world what Christ is like. And that's what marriage is about. And so are you reacting really against actual sin? And is your focus on God's concern, like Jesus in the temple flipping over the tables? Was he angry? Yes. Why? Because they were making a mockery of God's house. They had turned it into a den of robbers. That was holy and righteous anger. He even took a cord of whips and did some serious discipline. But you know what? The issue was real sin. And what was at stake was God's glory. And thirdly, third qualification to determine whether or not your sin is holy or sinful. Third one is this. It coexists with other godly qualities and it expresses itself in godly ways. How is your anger expressed? Is it expressed like spiritual fruit growing on a tree? The fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, self-control. In your anger, was Jesus controlled? You bet he was self-controlled. You see self-control all the way through. Everywhere in the Bible, the few places where you see holy anger, mostly coming from God the Father, by the way, it was always controlled. Is your anger controlled? Is your concern the welfare of the other person, God's glory? And are you really angry about real sin? Or if you thought about it, would it be, I want what I want and I'm not getting it? The other person has sinned against me and oh my, that gives me, that gives me a license to sin back. And God's glory, what does that have to do with anything? I have my rights. And if that's the way we respond to one another, it's no wonder there's trouble. It's no wonder there's trouble in your marriage or with your neighbor or with your coworker, or among your children. Because James asks, where does, what is the source of quarrel and conflict among you? Is it not the source of your pleasure that wages war, strategizing among your members? You lust. You have strong desires for things that God is withholding from you. 
You have strong desires for something that you're not getting through your mate or through your neighbor, your children, or your employer, or whoever. You lust and you do not have. And so, how do you respond to that? You commit murder. I mean, has it ever crossed your mind? I wish you were dead. Ooh, yeah. You know, some people follow through with that. And Jesus said, that's the root of murder. If you're unrighteously angry against your brother, it's murder. You are envious and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And when you ask, you ask with wrong motives in order to spend that thing on your pleasures. You want it. Here's the principle. Ready? I do what I do because I want what I want. I do what I do because I want what I want. Say it with me. I do what I do because I want what I want. It's so powerful. Next time you're dealing with a conflict among your children, don't ask them, why did you steal the cookie? Ask them, what was it that you wanted? Next time your brother hits your sister or vice versa, um, (laughs) next time that happens, don't ask them, why did you do that? I don't know. Ask them this. What did you want when you did that? I just wanted my seat back. That was my seat. I called it. Okay. And here's the follow-up question. How badly did you want it? Were you willing to sin to get it? Yes, sir. Now we need to apply transactional forgiveness. Here's the thing. Resolution number one, I will love my wife, my husband, in a biblical manner. Resolution number two, when I fail to fulfill resolution number one, I will apply God's remedy and ask forgiveness. That's God's way. You don't need drugs for that. You don't need therapy for that. You know what you need for that? You need the Holy Spirit in your life to give you the power to do it and the will to do it. And then you need the Word of God to tell you how to do it. And just to help with that last thing, I've come up with a little tool. Uh, It's a page, uh, half of it I wrote and half of it I stole. (laughs) Which is not a sin if you give credit. Did I give credit? I'll have to ask Wayne Mack if I have credit to do this. Um, In biblical counseling, this is is a a common thing, and and we all use it. It's called the log list. You know why it's called the log list? It's because uh, Jesus taught in uh, Matthew chapter 5 that it's, it's wonderful, it's great, it, it, it's obedient to Matthew 18 if you are going to talk to another person about their sin, but if they have a speck in, your eye, in their eye and you need to draw it out, be careful that you examine yourself to see if there's a log in your eye. Because if there's a big beam sticking out of your eye, if you've got all kinds of sin that's undealt with, then you are unqualified to deal with the other person's sin. You're unqualified. You are not qualified to deal with the other person's sin. So don't go telling them, even if they're 90% of the problem, don't go telling them how bad they are and telling them to repent unless you have dealt with the log in your own eye, even if it's smaller. And so here's the deal. Make a list of 30 ways you've sinned against your spouse. And we even have sheets that are not included in this that give you examples. Uh, 98 
examples to husbands and 103 uh, for the wives. I don't, I don't know what Wayne Mack was thinking, but take it up with him. Um, and set a time together privately where you can confess your sin to one another. A husband goes first. He confesses his sins transactionally, calling it a sin against God and a sin against you. And will you forgive me? And after forgiveness is granted, he asks his wife, did I miss anything? And she will say, yes. And she's allowed to add five more to his list. And then she needs to do the same thing. She confesses 30 things, 30 ways she sinned in this marriage. And at the end, she asks, have I missed anything? And he can add five more to her list. And then they exchange lists. And the husband says, would you please look over my 35 things and circle the top 10, the ones that are most meaningful to you, and give them to me in order, especially the first three to five. I want to I know what is the number one thing I do that hurts you and is a sin against you. And then after that, and then after that, and after that, can you please just list them out for me? I just need to see them in writing. And then she does the same thing. Would you please list for me in order? Just circle them. This is number one. This is number two. This is the thing that bugs me the most. This is the thing that hurts me second most. This is the thing that hurts me third most. And then the rest, uh, go ahead and circle 10, but you're going to see patterns after that. And then you pray together and you weep together. You cry together. And I've never seen, with the exception of maybe once, I've never seen a couple do this. I've never seen a couple do this for real and come away not holding hands, walking about two feet off the ground, singing together, smooching down the hall. I mean, doing counseling, you know, that next session is just worthless because they're looking at each other's eyes, and it's a wonderful thing. You know why? Because they dealt with the real issue. And the real issue is an incompatibility. It's not a chemical imbalance. It's sin. And you need help asking for forgiveness? That's what the other side is for. It's a breakdown. It's almost a script of transactional forgiveness. I call it the transactional forgiveness worship. This is what the offender says. This is what the offended responds back. This is how the offender speaks. This is how the offended responds. And you just work through it. You just go all the way through it. And then in the end, you hold hands, you pray, you cry, and you start enjoying the kind of marriage that God intended for you to have. A marriage that is grounded in two fundamental principles. I will love my spouse biblically, and I will deal with sin in our marriage biblically. To the praise of his glorious grace, to show my children and my neighbors and everybody who knows us what God is like, what Jesus is like, what the gospel is like. And when I fail to do so, I will apply the remedy Transactional forgiveness. Isn't it wonderful how practical God's word is? It's amazing. It's amazing. And it'll transform your life if you let it. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we praise you for this morning. We so desperately need your word to guide us, not just inspire us. Lord, we don't, we don't need so much inspiration from your word. We, we need to obey it. And then we'll be inspired with all kinds of joy knowing that we've honored you and we've honored the people who are closest to us. What a life that is. 
And then to see your children grow up under that influence and, and grow up joyfully loving one another. Oh, Lord, what a gracious, gracious gift. And praise you for the means of, of that grace, the means of prayer, the means of the church and the example we see in one another's lives that causes us to reach higher, the means of your word which gives us the truth and lays our hearts bare before us and doesn't always make us feel good, but does what's right and teaches us to live before you in a manner that's pleasing to our Savior. And oh, how we love to be pleasing to him. It brings us joy, and it brings you great glory, and so we give you praise for it in the name of our Savior, Jesus.